Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University with Civil War Talk Radio. In 1974, the late Michael Shara published an unheralded novel about the Battle of Gettysburg. In the years that followed, this book, The Killer Angels, became a landmark of Civil War fiction, winning the Pulitzer Prize and serving as the source of the movie Gettysburg. Today, the tradition of the Killer Angels is carried on in the work of the author's son, Jeff Shara, who has made a career of writing best-selling historical novels, including Gods and Generals and Last Full Measure. Please join us when we return with Jeff Shara on Civil War Talk Radio. Computers to improve fuel efficiency and reduce emissions. Check. Acoustic and optical wayside monitors to enhance safety. Check. Robotic systems to measure track geometry. Check. GPS tracking and tracing systems. Check. Sounds like a rocket or a jet getting ready for takeoff, doesn't it? Actually, it's something just as technologically advanced. A freight train. There's a new world of technology riding the rails that makes today's freight railroads more fuel efficient, safer, and cleaner running than ever. With wireless communications, transponders, and trackside readers that can pinpoint a shipment's location at speeds of up to 80 miles an hour, North America's freight railroads are driving the technology required by today's businesses and consumers. And with everything from apples to computers moving by rail, we wouldn't have it any other way. Chances are, the things you'll use tomorrow are taking the train today. Tomorrow, arriving by train. Sponsored by North America's Freight Railroads. Mission Critical. Two words that describe the data vital to every e-commerce website. If your company needs the services of an unparalleled co-location facility, you need to remember these two words, Castle Access. With Castle Access, your Internet servers will be secure in environmentally controlled data centers that offer high-speed managed Internet access and the highest standards of 24-7 customer support. For more info, visit castleaccess.com. Castle Access. We keep you online all the time. World Talk Radio, bringing the world to you. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. My name is Jerry Prokopovich at East Carolina University. And our guest today is historical novelist Jeff Shara. Jeff, how are you doing today? I'm doing fine, Jerry. It's good to talk to you. I think we last uh, met at Gettysburg a few years ago. That's right, exactly. And before that, uh, up in Fort Wayne at the, the Lincoln Museum. That's right, my old old haunt there. Sure. Well, I first uh, apologize for getting our show started a little bit late today with some technical issues, but it reminds me of uh, what Clausewitz says about war, that everything in war is simple, but the simplest thing is very difficult. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh, sometimes it makes you appreciate what uh, what some of the people you write about must have gone through. We, we People who, who read about the Civil War tend to speak uh, sometimes mockingly of people like George McClellan, but he did manage to get 100,000 people from one place to another. Well, exactly. I mean, the, you know, we take so many things, simple things, for granted today, just the, in terms of communication. I mean, what it, what it took to get a message from, you know, a quarter of a mile away, you know, might involve a man losing his life. It might involve uh, something that took two or three hours where we, you know, we pick up a cell phone, we can call anybody in the world. And I think people have a hard time sometimes understanding the challenges that, that uh, some of these people faced. That's right. You have to look at things in context to see how they go. 
And, I mean, I have enough trouble getting four family members in the car for a vacation. I <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I thought, uh, if you don't mind, I'd like to start our talk with uh, the Killer Angels. Um, but let me ask you first, uh, you must get asked about that all the time. Uh, how do you feel about talking about your father's work? Oh, I'm, I mean, I am very comfortable. In fact, I mean, I'm very open about the fact, I'm under no illusions that I would have no career at all if Michael Shara had lived. I mean, my father died at the age of 59 from his second heart attack. He had he suffered from heart disease most of his life. And uh, in, in 1988, at the time that he passed away, Killer Angels was not a successful book, and certainly not in his mind. In fact, he had gone on to write many other things, none of them historical. And I'm often asked if there was ever any plan from his point of view to finish the trilogy, uh, to tell the rest of the story. And the answer is no, because he had not found an audience with his book. It was only when the film Gettysburg came out five years later, 1993, that The Killer Angels became a bestseller. It became a number one bestseller 19 years after it was published. I don't know if that's ever happened before. But the, the success that eluded him all his career, I mean, he's, this, this is a man who spent 40 years of his life perfecting his craft. He wins a Pulitzer Prize for the Killer Angels, and yet the doors didn't fly open to him in New York. It, he didn't have publishers you know, beating down his door to, to publish anything he wanted to write. That was a bitter disappointment for him, and then the fact that the Killer Angels basically faded away and became known as a cult book, which is a terrible description of a book, and I mean, it was terrible to him. So, I mean, I'm, I'm walking in very big footsteps, and it's only because of the, the sadness of his life that I'm talking to you now. Well, you, you described it as a cult book, but I'll say I was a member of that cult because I'm, <laughs> I'm looking at my dog-eared 1974 printing of the novel. Uh, I, I read it with a group of military history uh, undergrads and graduates at University of Michigan in the mid-70s, and we talked about it. Every Everybody who was involved in military history was reading it and talking about it uh, as a revolutionary piece of work. Well, exactly, but see, what you're describing, when I, I talk about cult, I mean, what I'm talking about is if you were in the military, if you went to West Point, for example, it was required reading, or if you were an historian who focused on this period in our history, you were somewhat aware of the book, but the general public, by and large, uh, you know, consider the, the time that the Killer Angels was published. It was the end of the Vietnam War. Nobody in this country wanted to read a book that gave a positive portrayal of generals. I mean, we were not in the mood to salute generals in this country. And unless you were in, in the kind of environment you're describing, you, know, you simply had never paid any attention to the Killer Angels. And, and yet it was, uh, it, it is, of course, a, b a brilliant piece of writing, and it, it touched people on a lot of different levels. It's one of the few books uh, that my wife and I both enjoy. She reads novels almost exclusively. I read history almost exclusively. And this was a crossover that she read and thought was wonderful, and I, uh, of course, think the same thing. Uh, so, so it did. It had within it certainly the seeds of greatness. To uh, well, one of the things I hear a great deal uh, is uh, someone will say, you know, somebody handed me this book called The Killer Angels, said you need to read this, and I moaned and groaned and said, you know, I, I, when I put down that history textbook in school, I said I'd never pick up another history book. Uh, I don't read war books. But then they read the book, and suddenly they're taking their kids to Gettysburg. I mean, I meet a lot of people like that. And, I mean, that's the kind of thing that my father never heard very much in his lifetime. And, again, that's a responsibility I take very seriously. Well, this, uh, as we talk right now, I'm uh, enjoying my school's spring break, but I've got all my students doing some reading over break, and that's the book I've assigned to them. 
But what surprises me now is that uh, when I assign it, I'm I'm almost ready to take it off my list because so many of them have already read it, either in other history classes or just, as you say, someone hands it to them. Well, I was very honored to be invited to come to the Citadel uh, back in August uh, for their invocation of their newly arriving cadets. You had 700 cadets uh, enrolling, you know, they're starting their freshman year at the, at the Citadel, and they had been required to read the Killer Angels before they even got there. Um, and these are kids right out of high school. And then I was invited to come speak to them in that context, with them having just read my father's book. I mean, that, that was that was a, a big honor for me. And and but you're right. I mean, an enormous number of schools, particularly high school level uh, kids, are being required to read the book, which is again something my father never had any expectation of. Well, you know, maybe this gives hope to a lot of uh, aspiring writers out there, those of us who've maybe written a book uh, or thinking about writing a book. Uh, maybe you don't get the instant success, but if you write something that is truly uh, a great piece of work, it may eventually find its audience. I think so. I mean, I, I think certainly it's encouraging. Again, my, now my father, I don't know that his life would be encouraging to anyone who wants to be a writer. He had a very difficult life. I mean, this man published four novels and 70 short stories. 70. I mean, that's a huge a number of short stories, most of them science fiction stories. And yet, at the time of his death, he died believing that he had simply failed to leave anything behind. And that meant really more to him than any other part of his career. Not commercial success, not a bestseller. He wanted to leave something behind to be remembered. At the end of his life, he believed he had failed to do that. I mean, that's so ironic when you consider the, the, the powerful influence that the Killer Angels has had on now... We're talking about a third generation of, of kids coming up who, again, are visiting Gettysburg with their parents, or say in some cases taking their parents to Gettysburg. I mean, I, right. I, I meet so many of these people. It's a wonderful tribute to my father. Yes, and he, I also read his baseball novel uh, mm-hmm. a few years ago. I just found game. it on a library shelf mm-hmm. uh, for the love of the game. That's right. right. Yeah, and, that was a uh, book that was unpublished in his lifetime. Again, another bitter pill for him to swallow. He wrote this wonderful little book. It's a book you can read in an hour and a half. And it's it's a, a book that did not have an audience, did not have a publisher in his lifetime. After his death, my mother and I found the, the only surviving manuscript in, in his files. I took it to New York. Baseball was in fashion again, and it was published. And Kevin Costner jumped on it and made a movie out of it in 1999 called For Love of the Game. Um, the book is much better than the movie. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, again, that's, a, that's, that's the second time a book by my father has been made into film that he didn't live to see. Well, I, I had that just that experience you mentioned. I was at a, a library taking a break during a conference and uh, saw your father's name on the spine of this book and said, well, I'll look at that. And an hour and a half later, I sat there and read the whole thing. Uh, but it was, it was a great story. It is. Well, now, how about your own story? You uh, did not start out as a writer. You didn't study writing uh, as, as a in college or make that an initial career goal, did you? No, I mean, based on the description I've given you of my father's career, I mean, I grew up in the house of a man who was pretty much unhappy all the time with his career, who struggled through his career. The last thing in the world I wanted to do when I was 20 years old was follow that, you know, follow in those footsteps. I became actually the polar opposite of my father. I became a businessman. I was in the rare coin, precious metals business. I put myself through college doing that. And for 25 years, I ran a business in Florida uh, with no expectations of ever, you know, of ever doing any writing at all. Well, 
After my father's death, when the film Gettysburg came out in 1993, the film director, Ron Maxwell, approached me and said, you know, now that there is an audience, I mean, the thing about the film Gettysburg, which is based on the Killer Angels, is that film propelled the Killer Angels to enormous success, again, that my father didn't live to appreciate, but... Ron came to me and said, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful to continue this story, both before and after Gettysburg? And I had never written anything before, and I had no expectations. The whole idea is that Ron wanted me to put a story together that he could adapt for a screenplay. It was always to be for a movie. He said, you know, Ted Turner wanted to finance more of the story. He was very happy with the way Gettysburg turned out. It was enormous financial success. And uh, so I went about this. I'm always asked, how did you know how to write a book? I had no clue. But uh, the expectations were that if, if whatever I wrote was terrible, it would go in the trash. And in fact, Ron and I had that conversation that if it was awful, nobody would ever know it was written. And he would adapt it for a screenplay. Well, I'm representing my father's estate in New York with publishers, and I'm talking to Random House, and and they're you know now they have this Killer Angels number one bestseller, and they're looking at me saying, "What is this that you're doing?" And I said, "Well, I'm writing a prequel." And they said, okay, well, I guess you ought to let us look at the thing. And so I sent the manuscript to them, and the response I got, this was in September 1995. I'll remember this the rest of my life. The response I got was, we don't care if it's a movie. We like the book, and we think you're a writer, and we think you need to be doing more of this. And that phone call changed my life. Wow. Well, that, that is uh, uh, the kind of thing every writer dreams about happening. Certainly. Certainly. Wonderful. Now, you mentioned the movie Gettysburg. Uh, as you pointed out, uh, your, your father's baseball book was a better book than the movie adapted from it. Uh, what do you think of the movie Gettysburg as it compares to the novel? Uh, I think it's very, very close. I mean, that, that's a tribute to Ron's, you know, to, to the to what he did with his screenplay and to what his vision. He had worked with my father for many years. I mean, they had spent ten years together trying to get someone in Hollywood to put the money up to make the film really? with no success. At the time of my father's death, there was nothing happening with the film. And then it was only after that that Ted Turner got involved and, and agreed to finance it. But Ron basically held, I would say that the movie is probably 90% true to the book. That's an extraordinary percentage. I mean, in, in, for Hollywood's track record, uh, Hollywood most of the time uh, has no faith that, uh, uh, that a book will translate well to a film, and they, they tend to change everything. Um, but Ron did. I mean, he, he was very true to the Killer Angels, and I think my father would have been very pleased with that. I, I, I would have to agree with you. I can't recall ever seeing a movie that tracked a, its book source as closely as Gettysburg tracks Killer Angels. Exactly. Uh, and it does, I think, make a successful movie. Mm-hmm. Now, so you wrote uh, then the the prequel, the uh, story that comes before the Gettysburg campaign. Right, that's Gods and Generals. And this is the novel Gods and Generals, originally conceived as a screenplay. Right. And then it becomes a novel. Then it also becomes a movie. Well, yes, and, and of course now we're talking, I mean, times have changed, um, and I, I don't have a reasonable explanation for that. And I will say, because I understand that there are an enormous number of people who were very happy with the film Gods and Generals. I mean, I hear from an enormous number of, of you know, emails through my website and so forth, people saying, that, and it's interesting, they either love the movie, they think it's the best thing they've ever seen, they could, they've seen it ten times, they couldn't wait for the DVD to come out, or... I got emails from people saying, how could you let them butcher your book like that? 
and there's no middle ground. <laughs> it's either one or the other. And I think most people, or most of the responses I got were negative about the movie. And, and when I saw the original version in Hollywood, the, the six-hour version, I mean, I'm sitting in a private screening room in Hollywood, but this was about four months before the film was released, um, there, I, I was shocked that it was not, that Ron had not done what he had done with Killer Angels. He did not, I mean, it is not 90% of my book, it's about 10% of my book, and it's, it's a different film than the story that I told in the book. That was a surprise to me. Um, but, I mean, I had nothing to say about that. A lot of people assume I was intimately involved in the production or in the writing of the script. I had nothing to do with it. Uh, I was not, I had no input into the script at all. In fact, to this day, I don't even own a final script of the movie. They've never sent me one. Um, and I learned that... Jeff, I'm, I'm going to just interrupt because we need to take a break here. But I very much want to hear, and I know our listeners do more, about uh, Gods and Generals, sure. the movie, uh, from the viewpoint of the author. So we'll come back and talk about that in just a minute on Civil War Talk Radio.